0: 847 is 366 and 7.
1: Hello and welcome to A Score to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I'm your host, Brian McVicker. Each episode I focus on music composed for film and television, whether through analyzing a specific score, taking a deep dive into a particular composer's work, or by way of interviews with guests, both those in the industry and also fellow fans. In this episode, I'm continuing my recurring segment uh, that I like to title Listening To, as it will spotlight a specific composer, uh, my version of a 101 course uh, for the new and curious fans or those who just want to learn a little bit more about a particular composer. Uh, I always enjoy figuring out what are the tenets, what are the the, uh, hallmarks and defining features of the notable composers, uh, movie and TV music. And now I actually figured it was about time that i tackle the most well-known, the most famous film composer in the world. This is, of course, John Williams. He's the composer whose music has permeated our pop culture for the last 40 years, ever since Star Wars in 1977. Uh, However, his career began before that. Um, And what I'd like to do here, and hopefully you'll forgive me for this, is actually focus more on his career before the superstardom, Uh, before he was regularly collaborating with directors Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, before Superman, before Harry Potter, Um, and also to take a listen to those concurrent projects to the blockbusters um, that are maybe less notable or just not on the radar of general audiences. Basically, I wanted this episode to be about the John Williams you may not have heard. Of course, Williams himself really requires almost no introduction to most everyone, uh, as he is known and beloved the world over as the primary composer for those mega-movie series such as Star Wars and Indiana Jones. Jurassic Park and Harry Potter and Superman, um, though other talented composers have also contributed to the series uh, following his example. Interestingly, at the same time that he is honored and recognized appropriately by way of uh, many awards, um, he's actually the most Oscar-nominated living person, um, top-grossing movies and and, uh, concerts of his work year-round. I think he's also undervalued and underestimated. Um, Not only is his music uh, far more complex and thoughtful than just what is heard in those instantly memorable themes, but he also has an immense musical range that many are unaware of, um, mainly due to the movies themselves uh, maybe not being as well-known. For example, did you know that early in his career, back in the early 60s, he was more well-known for music such as this? was from the 1966 comedy uh, called Not With My Wife You Don't, starring Tony Curtis and George C. Scott. It's a really uh, hilarious title, uh, I think. It's a pretty far cry from the Imperial March and Superman, but no less fun. Um, Williams' uh, gift for indelible melodies really presented itself right from the beginning of his career. So just for a quick uh, biographical sketch, um, John Williams was born on Long Island in 1932. Uh, Moving out to Los Angeles not too long after that, Uh, he went to high school out here actually in North Hollywood, Uh, his father, uh, Johnny Williams, uh, was a jazz drummer uh, with the the Raymond Scott Quintet, and uh, he was also a studio musician in Hollywood, uh, something that the younger uh, John Williams actually followed in his footsteps on. Uh, Williams studied at uh, he studied music at UCLA as well as Juilliard. Um, now these two events were actually interrupted um, by three years a three year stint in the Air Force actually, um, and then during the 1950s, uh, Williams became a, a regular session player, just like his father, uh, on many film and TV projects playing piano on scores that were composed by Alfred Newman and Henry Mancini, for example. Um, Think of the TV show Peter Gunn uh, in the latter example there with Mancini's work. Um, Now, by 1958 uh, and into the 60s, he actually began scoring TV series himself. Um, He was often credited as Johnny Williams, uh, sometimes even as John T. Williams. Um, And some of the TV series that he uh, provided music for included Uh, The Craft Suspense Theater, uh, Wagon Train, uh, Gilligan's Island, um, Lost in Space, and The Time Tunnel. Um, Now, those last two TV series that I mentioned were part of uh, Williams' first long-running collaboration with a a director or producer. Um, In this case, it was Irwin Allen. Um, This was a collaboration that included both TV and film projects, and lasted until around the mid-70s. And uh, he did a couple of other um, shows for him, including uh, Land of the Giants as well. Um, But here's a quick sample of one of of Williams' early efforts with his season one main title uh, for Lost in Space. So that title theme uh, for Lost in Space uh, kind of follow along more of a tongue-in-cheek approach to the show. Um, But you can kind of hear in the brass work there, those real staccato uh, uh, trumpet flourishes there, that uh, it's definitely still the uh, hallmark of his sound. Um, And then this was replaced by a a new theme in Season 3, which was much more sort of a broad adventure kind of theme. Um, and then I also want to play uh, his theme for the Time Tunnel. It has kind of a tick-tock motif uh, that you can hear in the woodwinds right at the start. <laughs> Another interesting aspect of that theme from the time tunnel is its rhythm, which is kind of a modern jazz odd meter tempo, uh, which speaks to Williams' background as a jazzer. Uh, he was a, a you know also a pianist who played in jazz clubs around town, so he was particularly steeped in that musical vernacular, uh, and this really helped him in those early projects um, when uh, Hollywood was looking to adopt that cool jazz trend of the day into its music. So I wanted to spotlight another TV project from Williams around that same time frame, uh, but one that most people have never seen. Uh, It was a TV pilot uh, that he scored in 1965, so around the same year as Lost in Space started, Uh, but it didn't air until 1967. Uh, It aired on NBC uh, only once, and it never got picked up for a series. Uh, So this was a show called Ghost Breaker. And it's kind of an early X-Files type series where it has this—it uh, has a professor slash parapsychologist who investigates strange occurrences that may or may not have a supernatural uh, culprit. Now, the title theme starts with these swooping string glissandos uh, that kind of uh, lead into this light but steady mid-tempo beat. Um, and the instrumentation is interesting. It includes a harpsichord, organ, and guitar, Um, And then the main melody is performed by Four Horns in unison. Uh, So here is the main theme from Ghost Breaker, again, written and composed in 1965 uh, by Williams, but didn't really air on TV until 1967. By the early 60s, Williams had been initiated into his movie scoring career, uh, having been first introduced in 1959 on a forgotten little crime picture called Daddy-O. Yes, you heard that right. The name of the movie was Daddy-O. And this then led to being hired um, most often for a string of of light and zany comedies um, with names such as the aforementioned Not With My Wife You Don't. Um, But other comedies of the same ilk, which were often about Dating and relationships in the, in the 60s and, and uh, sort of uh, kooky miscommunications and things like that. But uh, some of these other comedies included Bachelor Flat, um, How to Steal a Million, um, and A Guide for the Married Man. Now, another one of these comedies is called Penelope from 1966, uh, starring Natalie Wood and Peter Falk. And I think it's a real highlight of Williams' uh, sort of swinging, jazzy style of the time, uh, very period-specific. Um, but this was a style that was being popularized um, really thanks to Mancini and what he had brought to the world of film music uh, you know, in, the, in the same decade. So I want to play a bit of this cue. Uh, it's from the album version uh, of, the, uh, of the soundtrack called Penny's Arcade. So that was a bit of the, the uh, track, uh, Penny's Arcade, from the soundtrack album version of Penelope from 1966. Just as a sidebar, I, the reason I, I kind of clarified that it was from the, uh, and as an album version is that uh, back in, in the 50s and 60s, uh, and, and you know, even through some of the subsequent decades, it's not done as much anymore. But when uh, there was going to be a soundtrack album out of the music from that movie, oftentimes what the composer would do is record the music again with a different orchestra because oftentimes it was cheaper uh, to use that version as opposed to the version of the music you actually hear in the movie. Um, there are various uh, union fees that you have to pay again to the, uh, the studio orchestra that is used on the film. So um, a lot of times you'd have soundtrack albums released of music from the movie, but it's and it's the music, As written for, but it was not the actual recording you hear in the movie. So Penelope was one of those albums that uh, what Williams did is he went back into the studio, different orchestra, changed some of the cues, and, uh, and released the album that way. So what's kind of fascinating is that version of Penny's Arcade, the melody, the melodic line is played by French horn. But in the film version of that cue, Uh, which i'll play here it's uh actually carried by alto flute uh which at least to me it sounds like alto flute so here's the film version of penny's arcade What turns out to be a nice surprise is that, even in subsequent years, Williams could effortlessly dip his toe back into his jazz roots at any time, Um, kind of in a similar fashion to what John Barry and Henry Mancini could accomplish as well. You'll find jazz cues in later scores of his such as The Long Goodbye and The Iger Sanction, and even up to as recent as Catch Me If You Can in 2002, plus those signature jazz chords often find their way into his orchestral work, if you can imagine. Now, I want to jump back uh, just one year to 1965 to mention uh, an early first brush with dramatic film scoring for Williams uh, with a World War II-centered picture called None But the Brave, uh, starring and directed by none other than Frank Sinatra. Uh, at this point in his career, um, you can actually start to pick up elements of what would emerge later in uh, in his career as far as his signature orchestral style. Uh, the main theme for this movie features this bold brass fanfare uh which kind of becomes a signature element that uh, that listeners often associate with williams um, the action and suspense music uh, not only is it similar to uh, what he would compose for *Lost in space uh, the tv series that same year but it also looks ahead to what you'll hear in the towering inferno um, almost 10 years later so you know kind of that style of his that grew out of uh, this period Uh, But here's a bit of a cue called Final Fight from None But the Brave in 1965. So the film assignments for Williams greatly increased um, in uh, 1966, and then in the following year, 1967, um, Williams worked on the uh, popular and somewhat infamous uh, movie Valley of the Dolls, uh, which was adapted from the, the best-selling book by uh, written by Jacqueline Suzanne and starring Patty Duke. Now, while his contribution uh, was primarily uh, based on ada- um, adaptations of songs by his friend and professional colleague... Andre Previn, it did mark uh, Williams' first time being nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, so that was the first in what would eventually number uh, 50 nominations uh, by 2017. Now, in the next few years following that, uh, Williams provided a uh, score for the first of three major movie musicals, um, that being 1969's uh, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, uh, which had songs by Leslie Bricus, uh, a frequent collaborator of Williams. Uh, he also nabbed his second Oscar nomination for another film that same year. Uh, the score that actually brought him to the attention of a young Steven Spielberg, uh, and that is The Reavers. So uh, this movie itself is uh, set in 1905 and stars Steve McQueen. Uh, the story uh, concerns two friends who, you know, skip work to joyride around in the boss's new car, which is kind of like a uh, almost a turn-of-the-century Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and <laughs> uh, now, the music for the Reavers uh, could be considered the score that put Williams on the map. It was his first nomination for original music instead of uh, adaptations, um, and it has that bright uh, bucolic style that he excels at. Um, plus, there's some folksy instrumentation, sort of period-specific, um, by way of harmonica and guitar and banjos and uh, attack piano. Uh, so here are some of the main title from the Reavers from 1969. So that was part of the main title, uh, music, from uh, Williams' Oscar-nominated score for the 1969 film, The Reavers. So as we leave behind the decade of the 1960s, one fascinating aspect of this early era in Williams' career is to put it in context of what was happening overall in the industry. It was a major time of transition for film scoring. Uh, the original pioneers of the art, um, the composers such as Max Steiner and Dimitri Tiomkin and Alfred Newman, uh, they were all either retiring um, or winding down their work in that decade. Um, or, as in the case of composer Franz Waxman, he passed away in 1967. He was another big pioneer of, um, of early film scoring. Alfred Newman's last score was for Airport in 1970. And so that era of the rich symphonic sound was diminishing in that decade as um, the newer composers came up, like John Barry and Henry Mancini, who were very comfortable adopting the current pop and jazz trends uh, into their music. Now, Williams was absolutely capable uh, to do the same with those current musical trends, as we've heard, um, as they permeated much of uh, movie music in that decade. But uh, he really picked up and ran with that symphonic heritage uh, from the godfathers of movie music. Um, if we consider the lush and bold, uh, classic orchestral sound of the golden age as a football, then, uh, Williams kind of metaphorically grabbed it from Steiner and, uh, Eric Wolfgang Korngold and continued running down the field to the end zone for a touchdown. Uh, granted this was mainly showcased, um, a little later on with his music for Jaws and Star Wars and, and, and on, um, uh, but it's still interesting nonetheless to kind of acknowledge how Williams continued in that symphonic classical lineage, and then really made it his own. So, as we pull into the early 70s, um, William started tackling more diverse film projects as, as his career uh, grew and grew. Um, uh, there were two more big movie musical adaptions in that decade, uh, Fiddler on the Roof and Tom Sawyer. Uh, Fiddler on the Roof uh, garnered him another Oscar nomination for uh, musical adaptation. Uh, there were dramas like Pete and Tilly and Cinderella Liberty. And also his second Western film, his second Western genre film, uh, called The Cowboys from 1972, starring John Wayne. So his first Western was The Rare Breed in 1966. And it's kind of unfortunate that he didn't get assigned to more Westerns, um, as I think his approach, his orchestral approach, is tailor-made for the traditional variety of of movies in the genre. Um... I think it's mainly because the the sun was already setting on the traditional Hollywood Western movie uh, when he was coming up in the 60s. They were less being produced in that mold. And... And at that time, Williams was considered a composer more for TV series and um, those zany movie comedies. So um it's kind of unfortunate he didn't get to do more of those. But either way, his his music for the Cowboys uh, is just brimming with uh, energy and uh, and wonderful melodies. Uh, so here's a bit of the main title from the Cowboys uh, from nineteen seventy two. So that was some of the music from the main title uh, for the Cowboys from 1972. Um, you can hear there Williams uh, sort of tipping his hat to the uh, legacy of composer Aaron Copland and um, how his concert music had become sort of the uh, sound for the American movie western um, but it's mixed in with uh, Williams' own uh, developing orchestral style especially in those upper range soaring strings uh, which you could hear in the bridge of the melody. Um, you know, we heard some of that starting in The Reavers as well, and that really kind of becomes a staple of his, uh, his orchestral sound. I should also mention that uh, both The Reavers and The Cowboys were collaborations with director Mark Rydell, uh, for whom Williams ultimately scored four of his films. Uh, so this was another, another notable partnership that he had fostered through his career um, that started before um, his uh, long-running partnership with Spielberg. But uh, in that same year as the Cowboys in 1972, uh, Williams composed what could be considered his most off garde score for famed director Robert Altman's Images. Uh, so this was a movie starring Susanna York uh, in a surreal story about uh, schizophrenia. And uh, it features a musical side that's rarely heard from Williams. Um, it's very eerie and unsettling. Uh, more akin to a horror movie score, um, along with a, a very melancholy uh, piano-led melody supported by strings, that you can hear in this cue. So that was a cue called Blood Moon from Images. Uh, certainly not the style that most are accustomed to hearing from Williams, but that's one of the reasons I wanted to highlight it, uh, as it's an early example of his uh, often overlooked immense musical range. Um, in, the, in his blockbuster era of film scores in that post-1977 era, that, um, he's not often called upon to write something so disquieting, uh, but he can certainly bring it when needed. Uh, So Robert Altman and Williams um, actually worked together back in their TV days um, on the craft Suspense Theater, and following images, um, Altman um, hired Williams again the very next year on a movie called The Long Goodbye. Um, This was adapted from uh, the Raymond Chandler detective novel of the same name, starring Elliot Gould as Philip Marlowe. So this time the music is a full 180 degrees from what we heard in images, Um, but no less daring in its application. Um, Altman asked Williams to compose just one singular theme for the movie, which is then repeated in just a variety of permutations, um, such as jazz, a blues version, a mariachi version, vocal versions. Um, But the movie doesn't really receive um, cues that are composed specifically to the on-screen action. Um, So it's just more sort of in the background, but it uh, and coloring it, but it's not kind of following any specific um, action on screen. So it's just that theme that you're hearing over and over. But um, here is the jazz version uh, with Williams himself on piano. What I like about that score for *The Long Goodbye* is that it, it not only highlights um, Williams' uh, his background as a as a jazz guy, as a as a jazzer, um, but also um, his beginnings in Hollywood as a session player, uh, as a pianist for orchestras for TV and movie music, as we've as we've talked about. Um, So following on this, Williams then uh, explored the pop trends of the day in the 70s as he had explored pop trends of the 60s and some of those zany comedies. Um, But he actually applied some of those pop trends to another Western, his third Western, um, a film called The Man Who Loved Cat Dancing, uh, starring Burt Reynolds. Um and I know it's kind of a weird title but uh, the movie had a very troubled production history um it pretty much from you know day 1 from start to finish um and it even encompassed the music aspect uh, Williams was actually called in to replace the initial score which was composed by Michelle Legrand and he had only 1 week to do it uh, so this is kind of evidence of, of Williams' ability to, to, you know, kind of quickly muster up, again, all of his faculties to compose, you know, a brilliant main theme and, and again, brilliantly apply his music um, really thoughtfully to the scenes in the movie. So here he provides this really um, memorable, catchy breezy main theme one of my favorites of his from the 70s um along with uh he he adds into later in the movie some traditional expansive orchestral cues uh which are kind of reminiscent of his music for the cowboys uh but here's that main theme from the man who loved cat dancing Whenever I hear that theme, it gets stuck in my brain for a few days. But uh, interestingly, I, I learned through uh, the, the liner notes um, in the uh, album release of this by Score Monthly um, that the, uh, the piano, that little riff right there at the beginning is not actually on a piano. It's on a pianola, which I had thought it was a tack piano, but I was actually wrong about that. Um, and in that theme, there's actually two themes in that piece. Uh, there's a love theme that's on guitar and then a secondary theme on harmonica. But uh, the love theme was actually... Uh, converted into a song called dream away uh, with lyrics by paul williams uh, interestingly enough so during this decade uh, williams also had a brief run as the uh, premier uh, quote-unquote disaster movie composer uh, disaster movie of course being that genre of uh, a film that puts its big cast of all stars uh, usually it's a big cast of all stars in grave danger usually due to a natural catastrophe um, this kind of started off in, the, uh, in 1970 with the uh, movie Airport, uh, which, again, like I mentioned earlier, had a, a score by Alfred Newman. But uh, Williams' run as, a, as the composer for a number of these films was uh, thanks to uh, still being the go to guy for producer Irwin Allen, who had migrated from TV series to the big screen. And, uh, so this collaboration in the seventies with Irwin Allen included movies such as the Poseidon Adventure in, uh, around 72 to, and Towering in Inferno and Earthquake in 74. Now for both Poseidon Adventure and Towering Inferno, each also received a hit pop song sung by Maureen McGovern, uh, uh basically, uh, The Morning After for the former, and We May Never Love Again from the latter. Now for me, I think Towering Inferno, uh, Features an outstanding score that's a highlight of Williams' work in that decade. Um, it's at turns exciting, suspenseful, jubilant, um, and also includes some really lovely romantic material and a big soaring finish. Um, it's I kind of feel like this is when the uh, Williams popularity starts to it starts its incline as he starts to become more popular and, and uh, gain a little more notoriety. Uh, sometimes thanks to those pop songs, uh, but also because the films are becoming uh, bigger hits. And Towering Inferno was a pretty big hit. So here's part of the five-minute opening cue. Uh, it's for a sequence underscoring a helicopter flight over San Francisco, um, and it has this. Arching sort of brass-led theme that that leaps upward, in, in a way, it's it's you know you it kind of follows a model of, of some of uh, Williams' other uh, upward-leaping uh, brass themes. Uh, very major key, very bright, um, and it's funny the the shape of that melody almost sketches musically a skyscraper kind of reaching for the sky. So here's a bit of that uh, five-minute uh, opening cue from the Towering Inferno. it's really an exciting cue it really kind of goes along towards the excitement of a star wars main title or superman or raiders of the lost art kind of main title uh just brimming with exuberance um but you can also start to hear some of williams trademark flourishes in his music uh just in terms of you know what he's accentuating in in the uh sections of the orchestra but uh i should mention towering inferno uh actually was uh, resulted in another oscar nomination for for williams uh he didn't win but the song did win for its uh for its song actually Um, In that year, in 1974, Williams, this is that year where he began his long-running collaboration, still going on to this day, with uh, director Steven Spielberg. Uh, They began their partnership with the uh, Goldie Hawn-led movie The Sugarland Express, um, which is a really charming movie, um, and it has a a kind of a small-scale score, you know, featuring um, harmonica uh, performed by Toots Thielman. And then, of course, in 1975, it, you know, doesn't need to be, said but the mega popular and game-changing thriller Jaws came along Uh, and it's a score that really needs no introduction right Of course, we all know that one. But uh, I think, you know, while Williams had been kind of, you know, his, his star was steadily rising in the uh, first half of that decade. Um, you know, he had been put on the map, you know, thanks to, you know, some of the Oscar nominations, his um, adaptation work um, on Fiddler on the Roof and Tom Sawyer. And then, of course, uh, with the big uh, hits, The Poseidon Adventure and The Towering Inferno. Um, I really think it was Jaws, obviously. I mean, it, it, that put him permanently on the A-list. It put him on the, everybody's shortlist for who they wanted to score a film. Uh, I mean, you know, it basically, you know, is half the movie is Williams' music. It's, it's, it's some of its effectiveness, half of its effectiveness, I think, is, is all attributed to um, is Williams' music plus Spielberg's direction. Um, but uh, in, the, uh, in the year before Star Wars, so in 1976, um, before Star Wars kind of burst onto the cinematic landscape in 77, um, Williams scored three pictures, um, all showcasing, again, his uh, wonderful musical variety. Um, first, there was a kind of eccentric Western uh, called The Missouri Breaks, starring Jack Nicholson and Marlon Brando, two titans of their craft. Um, but it doesn't really feature a traditional Western score. It's more of a small-scale um, ensemble uh, that, that uh, Williams kind of uh, gathers together, focused mainly on folk instrumentation, um, harmonica and banjo, uh, plus uh, electric bass and a keyboard at times. Um, secondly, there is, uh, the big budget, uh, movie Midway, uh, which was a, 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 World War II historical epic, uh, with an all-star cast, uh, which kind of worthy of a disaster movie. If you think about it, it's just sort of a historical, uh, sort of set disaster movie. Uh, you've got Charlton Heston, Henry Fonda, James Coburn, and more. Um, now for Midway, Williams composed two main themes, one called Men of the Yorktown, which is more noble-sounding, and then, secondly, uh, the Midway March, uh, which kind of has become a staple in his concert repertoire, but it's sort of a John Philip Sousa-inspired march, kind of an early example of the the many great marches that Williams has composed through the years for later movies such as Superman, 1941, and um, Indiana Jones, and also marches for world events uh, like the Olympics. Um, Now, if I recall correctly, I think it was his friend and colleague, Andre Previn, who said that uh, Williams was always ready to compose a march at the drop of a foot, (laughs) which always makes me laugh. So here's a bit of that midway march. The third score uh, from Williams from 1976 uh, accompanied the final film of the legendary director Alfred Hitchcock. And this will be the lighthearted kidnapping tale family plot. So 10 years prior, Hitchcock had a falling out with Bernard Herrmann who had been his house composer, essentially, um, on a number of their uh, collaborations, a number of Hitchcock's best-remembered films, like North by Northwest and Psycho and, and Vertigo. Uh, so he and Herman had a falling out over Torn Curtain in 1966. And starting on that film and uh, his Hitchcock's subsequent movies, he was kind of moving from composer to composer. Um, he had hired Maurice Char for Topaz, and he hired Henry Mancini and John Addison had worked on um, on Torn Curtain, so he hadn't really settled on a new, consistent uh, composer partnership, but uh, he had sought out Williams for Family Plot, uh, and Williams, um, he had even uh, called up composer Bernard Herrmann, um, who was still alive at the time, but, but he was going to die. He actually passed away later that year, that same year in 1976. He had sort of called up Herrmann to get his blessing to, um, to work with Hitchcock on Family Plot. Um, but Williams uh, composed a score that in a way sort of looks forward to some of his work in the uh, fantasy genre, um, Harry Potter, uh, a little bit of a Witches of Eastwick, um, in that it has this um, impressionistic tone, this, uh, this ethereal uh, female choir, these floating flutes, um, it's sort of this effervescent tone, um, and it has this also mischievous edge and even a harpsichord in the background. So it, it does give it a little bit of, a, of an edge there to it, which I think kind of puts it, uh, like I said, as a progenitor to uh, Witches of Eastwick. But here's a bit of the end title from Family Plot. So I tend to think that the three years leading up to Star Wars uh, in 74, 75, and 76, you can really kind of hear his style coalescing, his, uh, his orchestral sound especially sort of coalescing as it developed in those years. Um, you start to get all these components that he becomes famous for um, later on. You sort of get them in pieces through those years. You've got the Uh, major key brass fanfare, celebratory sort of fanfare in Towering Inferno, and you've got the march um, in Midway, and then you've got these impressionistic uh, colors and these sort of um, high flutes and and harp arpeggios in uh, in family plot. Um, And so all this sort of comes together and sort of leads the way into... Um, 77 with Star Wars and Close Encounters and so on uh, after, that, after that. But so I think those years preceding it are very important for hearing the, the, the foundation of the style that he became famous for. Um, I mean, you can, you know, of course, hear it all the way back to the 60s. But that, that larger orchestral sound really started to coalesce in, uh, in those three years, I think, before, uh, before Star Wars in 77. Um, so that was, of course, the, the next year was the turning point for Williams' career, the year that he really rocketed to superstardom. Um, you know, like I said, I think Jaws kind of started that uh, acceleration for him. I think if, if you think of his career as a car, basically that's when the, uh, the gas pedal was pushed down to accelerate him into the fast lane. Um, and then in 77, Williams really pulled ahead of the pack, um, emerging as the most recognized most well-loved composer of the art, um, really thanks to the one-two punch of Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind in that year, 1977. And both of those scores deserve every bit of praise and attention um, that they receive. They, they showcase Williams' um, absolutely brilliant and, and thoughtful application of his music, um, you know, in terms of, you know, scene by scene or, or when he doesn't use music. Now, in that same year, as those two powerhouses um, kind of over in the corner, uh, the last score that he wrote before the big spotlight um, is his lean and mean score for a movie called Black Sunday. Now, this is not the horror movie of the same name from 1960, but it's instead a movie about a terrorist group trying to detonate a bomb at the Super Bowl using uh, the Goodyear blimp. Now, I kind of count Black Sunday and and even maybe Jaws as part of that disaster movie run of his in the 70s. Um, But here, um, with Black Sunday, Williams puts this propulsive, nervous, action ostinato through its paces, um, he basically builds tension through repeating this ostinato over and over again in different uh, sections of the orchestra. Um, it's not unlike the single-minded ostinato for Jaws. It's a little more developed than 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 that, but um, it kind of functions in, in the same way of really kind of amping up the tension um, in so many sequences in Black Sunday. So here's a little bit of that um, action ostinato in a cue called the Explosion. Mm-hmm. Now I realize I should probably define ostinato for anyone in the audience who doesn't, uh, who's not familiar with that term. Um, basically, an ostinato is a musical term uh, for a short, repeated uh, musical phrase or a, a, or a rhythmic device. Um, you know, usually just you know just short number of notes uh, that get repeated over and over again, whether by strings or brass or whatever. So it's not really a developed melody, um, but it's just like that short three or four or five notes uh, that kind of um, repeat or loop. And again, it could just be a rhythmic device as well, but it's really great uh, for propelling your scene um, and giving your scene a lot of forward motion, um, whether it's suspense or whether it's action. Now, I want to make mention of another um, musical highlight from the score from Black Sunday. Um, It's a cue uh, for a montage sequence, Um, and I wanted to highlight it basically to talk about to basically apply to Williams' approach to scoring overall in that this cue is different from other uh, cues in the score, in that it is based on a fugue. Now, a fugue is a concert classical form. Um, It dates back to the Baroque era, um, and it's essentially um, having a melody that is introduced by a section of the orchestra, then another section of the orchestra enters in later, Starts the same melody, and then another section inter- uh, starts a little bit later than that. Starts the same melody, and then everyone kind of starts to um, kind of interweave and sort of develop the melody in a different way. Um, so it's you know it's it's a concert classical device, but I, what I wanted to mention is that it's it ha- kind of is, is an example of Williams uh, um, basically the way he adopts classical. Uh, concert Classical forms and structures in his scores, even for particular cues. So whether it's a fugue or a scherzo or, or, or another um, sort of form uh, from the Concert Classical, Williams has shown time and again how he likes to adopt that into his scores. And I think what it does is it, it it's amazing because it can still accompany the film action, whatever's happening in the scene. And yet it also allows that cue uh, to, to act as a standalone piece of music that has a beginning, middle, and end. You can think of some other famous cues that, uh, that even get played in concert, like his music for the asteroid field in The Empire Strikes Back. It works with the scene, and yet you take it out of the movie, and because it is developed... Um, It sort of functions as a standalone piece of music, and that becomes a real hallmark of William's approach to his scores, is sometimes just these individual scenes, he will adopt a traditional classical form or structure from the concert stage, and he'll sort of use that as his um, model, and then, you know, that's going to be what the cue is. Like, in this case, it's a fugue. So I'm going to play a little bit of this fugue from Black Sunday. (laughs) Now, there's also a Fugue he composed two years earlier, uh, but that was for Jaws, uh, specifically for the sequence late in the movie where the three main characters build the shark cage um, when they're out on the the little boat, the orca. Uh, It was a fairly unique approach at that time to score a scene um, in a contemporary set movie with uh, such a classically formal structure, uh, especially since there was so much pop music being utilized back then um, in the 70s following along from the model from the, uh, the 60s. But anyway, as I mentioned, the very next score that Williams composed after Black Sunday, which was released in March of 1977, was Star Wars. And the rest is movie music history. Um, afterwards, Williams was considered the top A-list guy. Um, he won an Oscar for uh, for Star Wars um, after he had won his Oscar in 75 for Jaws. Uh, so Williams was essentially entering the blockbuster phase of his career and then we as the audience all watched his special partnerships with both uh, Spielberg and George Lucas um, create multiple magical motion pictures. Um, Of course, Williams uh, is is well known for for being a gracious and humble individual, and he simply continued taking other projects as normal, as if nothing else was different, uh, all while composing uh, masterworks such as Superman, uh, Empire Strikes Back, and uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, in quick succession, actually. One stellar example of, uh, from these concurrent film projects to those uh, big blockbusters was The Fury from 1978, directed by Brian De Palma. Uh, and featuring a score by Williams um, that could be considered his as most Hermanesque. esque uh, I guess the the score that pays the most homage to um, fellow film composer Bernard Herman. Um, this was something specifically requested by De Palma. Um, De Palma, as a director, had. Become and was well known to being a real devotee of of Alfred Hitchcock's style, um, and even followed suit in hiring Bernard Herrmann as his composer on two of his own movies uh, in the early 70s Sisters and Obsession. Um so it's it it's interesting in terms of like De Palma's career that's one of the things that people have noted is that he he definitely has a Hitchcock like uh style but it's interesting to compare uh what Williams composed for The Fury to what we heard from Williams from uh that he uh supplied for Family Plot which was actually directed by Alfred Hitchcock 2 years prior and how Williams score for Family Plot really doesn't reflect much influence from Herman um so the fury centers on uh, young people with telekinetic powers who are kind of trained to be killers. Um, Williams opens the movie with this dark main title, which has this moody, melodic line that kind of ascends and descends in a circular motion. Um, it's not unlike the hypnotic main title from Vertigo. Um, maybe it doesn't feel as uh, as manic as Vertigo's main title, um, but it definitely is um, very uh, moody and sort of brooding um but uh, but i think it has a, a sort of a, a cousin to uh, hermans main title from vertigo so here's uh, the main title from the fury from 1978 In that same year, uh, Williams also contributed marvelous music to both Superman and Jaws 2, and then he closed out the decade in 1979, uh, adding a sprightly, March-led score to Steven Spielberg's World War II set comedy 1941, and also a darkly-hued, rapturous uh, score to John Badham's gothically romantic version of Dracula, starring Frank Langella and Laurence Olivier. So here we're Pretty much smack in the middle of what is arguably the most famous era of John Williams music, that blockbuster era between 1977 and 1983, bookended by the first and third Star Wars movies of the classic trilogy. Now, his score for Dracula uh, features many of the hallmarks of that same phase. Um, There's some low woodwind work that recalls uh, the initial Star Wars score, and there's some sweeping crescendos um, that uh, you might find in Superman. So, uh, Williams had by now firmly adopted the model of the golden age of movie music uh, from the 30s and 40s, that 19th century symphonic classical sound, the multi-thematic structure and then grafting that onto modern cinema and flavoring it with his own style. Um, now, overall, Williams treats this version of The uh, Transylvanian Menace uh, less as a horror movie and more of a tragic romance, uh, interestingly enough. And in fact, uh, director John Badham uh, himself is quoted, um, this is in the the. Uh, Special feature for the, uh, the DVD, but John Badham himself was quoted as stating, uh, and I quote, "...as we were about to begin, uh, he, Williams, confessed that he had never seen a vampire movie of any sort before." Somehow he had managed to stumble upon full adulthood without having been exposed to the veritable gauntlet of Dracula films produced in the last 50 years. Not a frame. How fortunate to have the preeminent film composer of the day arrive with no advanced notion of the kind of catch-up and thunder music that prevails in the horror film genre. When the London Symphony Orchestra got its collective teeth on the music in May, this was uh, in 79, they played a score that is wildly romantic, shamelessly so, operatic in scale. It surrounds and elevates this often-told tale of the vampire king who takes a queen for himself. When I first showed the movie to John, his initial fix on it after looking at it and thinking about it for a while was Tristan and Isolde. A great love story, a great tragic love story. That was his sort of inspiration as the starting point. So here's the cue that I wanna play from, uh, from Dracula 1979. This is a cue uh, called The Love Scene. So I hadn't initially intended this overview to be a two-parter, but I had such fun diving into the lesser-known TV and movie scores uh, from Williams in the 1960s and 70s that I think I should pause here so at least I won't feel compelled to rush through the next few decades only to keep this episode from becoming too lengthy. Uh, So as we close out the decade of the 70s with uh, Dracula, uh, I'll close out part one of my overview on John Williams. So, as always, I want to thank everyone for listening today. I hope it was as fun for you as it was for me to take this dive into the Williams you may not have heard, uh, specifically the Williams from the 1960s and 70s. In part two, I'll pick up with the 80s and beyond, uh, still focusing on the non-blockbuster side of his work. Uh, At a later time, I should absolutely devote some attention to those classics as well um, of the Spielberg-Lucas era. Uh, If you're interested in learning more about Williams, check out the site jwfan.com. It's a pretty good resource about his career, soundtrack albums available, concerts, uh, there's a forum, um, and uh, all sorts of other fun stuff. I want to make a small correction to something I stated earlier in that I overlooked another Western movie that Williams had scored, that being The Plainsman* from 1966. It was the same year as The Rare Breed, so I was off in my count of how many West- Westerns he had done actually. <laughs> Music in this episode was composed by John Williams and from the following films and TV shows. Not With My Wife You Don't, Lost in Space, The Time Tunnel, Ghost Breaker, Penelope, None But the Brave. The Reavers, The Cowboys, Images, The Long Goodbye, The Man Who Loved Cat Dancing, The Towering Inferno, Jaws, Midway, Family Plot, Black Sunday, Dracula, and then we're closing here with a cue from The Iger Sanction from 1975. If you'd like to send any comments or questions, you can email the show at podcast at gmail.com. Find the blog at ascortosettle.blogspot.com. On Facebook at facebook.com slash settle and on Twitter at uh, score to settle Pod, and that's score the number two settle pod. If you listen to the show by way of iTunes, feel free to leave a rating and a review. That's always appreciated. Thanks again for listening.